You're listening to the Business of Environment podcast with Mark Roman. Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Environment podcast, where we explore insights on the intersection of business, the environment, and regulation. I'm your host, Mark Roman. I've really been looking forward to our guest today, Zach Stein, co-founder of Carbon Collective. Carbon Collective is the first investment advisory firm focused solely on solving climate change. Zach has an environmentally focused entrepreneurial background, which began when he founded Urban Worms, a San Francisco-based worm composting farm that took horse manure and apple pulp, some common waste products, and turned them into premium compost that sold for about $20 a gallon. Urban Worms then led Zach into the world of indoor farming, raising leafy vegetables and fish in controlled environments. He teamed up with James Rugolinski to launch Osmo Systems, an innovative sensor monitoring platform that would enable first indoor farmers and then the broader world of fish and shrimp farming to to detect key aspects of their water quality for one-tenth the cost. Zach and James raised over $4 million from top-tier venture capitalists to commercialize this technology. And now Zach and James have raised over $3 million to scale Carbon Collective and are rapidly expanding their offerings, their team, and their member base. Carbon Collective has been featured in many prominent outlets, including Forbes, Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance, Business Insider, and Green Tech Media, to name just a few. Zach currently resides in Albany, California, with his wife, Ari, and his son, Caleb. Welcome, Zach, to the Business of Environment podcast. Mark, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. First, beyond, beyond your, your your brief bio, Zach, can you let everyone know a little bit more about your background and, and really what was the path that eventually led you to Carbon Collective? Yeah, I've had a very meandering career. Um, I've always been my own boss. I graduated from college in 2011 with a degree in psychology and Arabic, which I have not really used. (laughs) And I uh, got started, as you said, in sustainability um, with a urban farming fellowship that I did in Berkeley in 2011, which eventually led me into Urban Worm and down the path that you described The phrase I heard once, which really resonated for me, was life is only linear in the rearview mirror, Mm. where, yeah, where I couldn't project where I'd be today from kind of 22, I'm 32 now, so 10 years later. Um, But if I look back, I can see how every step of it strings together. And for Carbon Collective in particular, James and I, as you noted, this is our second time founding a company together. And... We got started in the beginning of 2020 trying to explore what were better tools that we could build to enable individuals to collectivize our climate action. Right now, when it comes to climate change, so often we as individuals get stuck at the top of an emotional feedback cycle where it's we're just left of like, oh my God, this is utterly terrifying and I am so afraid. And that's it. There's not necessarily a way of, and here's what I should do about it. And here's what we should do about it. Here's what the path out looks like. And here's how you fit into that. So we knew that that's a space that we wanted to build in to say, A, how do we help people better map the path, path out and then collectivize our individual impact together to uh, be as impactful as possible. And we ended up interviewing over 120 people trying to understand where their climate anxiety took them and where they got stuck. 
And again and again, it was investing was this place where people were looking for ways to invest their retirement funds in the world that they actually wanted to retire into and kept seeing with ESG funds and SRI funds and things like that, they'd look inside and say, okay, this sounds good at the outset. But then they'd look in and say, well, why is this company in here? And how does this make sense? And how do I actually see what was the process of building this? And so it leads to a pretty big erosion of trust. And when it comes to climate change, when we zoom all the way out, we actually need sustainable investing to work really well. We fundamentally believe that sustainable investing is currently a broken system, and it's one that we're trying to help fix. Because for us to solve climate change, we need to dramatically increase the investments into climate solutions. Something like five to nine trillion dollars are needed per year to be invested into climate solutions. Um, for us to be on track to avoid catastrophic warming. Climate change is a problem we have to build our way out of. And at the same time, we have to dramatically decrease investments into fossil fuels and fossil fuel-related industries. And when we take that model and say, okay, that's pretty clear, and then we try to map that onto what Wall Street or other investment firms are labeling as sustainable, they don't fit whatsoever. And so that's what we've created Carbon Collective to be, is to be a forward-looking um, investment strategy where we're saying, what is the world that we have to build to solve our greatest sustainable issue? And then how do we work backwards to the world that we have today and get there and then connect the dots for you? So we're leveraging as much change as we can to building that world. Okay, great. I, I never thought of the power of my investment being able to have an effect on, you know, climate change and, 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 and the world in general. It's, it's, I, at least on my, my part, I, I look at, I, I never looked at investment in that fashion. And it's, it's a great way of looking at that. Uh, before we talk a little bit more about Carbon Collective and uh, that, that, that uh, motto there of, of mirror in the rearview mirror, uh, if you can share with our listeners your story of how long you've known James and how you guys met up again in, in Aloran to become successful uh, business partners. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate in that I get to work with my oldest friend every day. James and I have known each other since we were four years old. Our dads went to Stanford together. And so I have memories of James and I playing as children, running around in his backyard, running through sprinklers many summer times at the <laughs> pool. Um, so it's pretty amazing to skip ahead. And we, we often did, you know, we had very active imaginations. Uh, I remember once they got a new refrigerator. And we played in that refrigerator box. You know, it was a spaceship, it was a time machine, whatever it was, for weeks. Um, so it's pretty cool now to be in this position of founders of a company who are trying to also just stimulate and push our collective imaginations of what is it going to take to solve climate change? And how can we do a better job of smelling and tasting and breathing in that world? because it's a better world than the one that we have today. And the more that we can actually imagine it and hold on to it, the more likely it's going to become that it happens. So, so tell us a little bit more about Carbon Collective and, and how you do the things you do. And also, what were some of the hurdles that, that you, you had to overcome to bring Carbon Collective uh, from really a thought to a reality? Yeah, so it took a lot of research. It took understanding how are we not repeating some of the same mistakes as other folks who have tried this? You know, there's, we're not the first green investing platform, for example. 
And what we found is that a lot of the previous attempts at something like a carbon collective, they didn't fully embrace the fact that your primary reason for saving for retirement is to save for retirement. It is not to, it's not charity. It is not to leverage change necessarily. And so having a collection of 50 green stocks, for example, is great, but you're going to get treated much more like climate charity in that regard. People aren't going to move their full IRAs into that. It's going to feel too risky. So we knew from the outset that we had to fit, not break, how people have been trained to what is the smartest way to invest, which for most people is to do what Vanguard has uh, made popular to the world. Uh, Invest with as much of the market as possible, with as low fees as possible, and set and forget. And that is going to be the way where you're going to have the greatest success and also some of the lowest stress in doing so. So for us, the question was, okay, how do we take that model of passive investing and then apply that through the lens of climate change of what we have to build? And what became pretty clear is a three-step approach for us to do that. The first is we divest. We divest from the industries that are technologically blocked from being able to exist in a world where we solve climate change. So barring some miracle breakthrough in technology, um, we do uh, these companies in a world where we achieve zero carbon emissions, they would need to change businesses. That company would need to change businesses and industries in order to exist in that time frame. So we divest from, it's about 20% of the market from them. And then step two is we reinvest. We give their share to the companies that are building solutions to climate change. Often these are the companies that are rising to replace them, to replace oil and gas, et cetera. It's a much broader list than just uh, uh, wind and and, uh, solar, um, but building automation, uh, home insulation, electric cars, batteries, plant-based foods, and many, many more. Um, What we do is we say, okay, what are the best plans to solving climate change from independent groups like Project Drawdown, the International Energy Agency, and more? What do they identify as climate solutions? We then map those onto the existing stock market and what products and services those companies are building to say which companies are building climate solutions and which are generating more from their climate solutions than from products or services built for the fossil fuel industry. So we only use revenue as a predictor of the future, your last year's revenue. So that's step two is we reinvest into the climate solutions. And then step three is we broadly hold the remainder of the market because to us, these are the companies whose core businesses can exist in a zero carbon world which means it's upon us as shareholders to get them to get there as quickly as possible, which means they're adopting 100% renewable energy. And it means that they are switching to 100% electrified fleet and more. Um, So that is how we came into building our portfolios because what we're able to do is have portfolios that have that clear theory of change, but don't break the mold of what smart investing is you get a similar level of risk and reward in that portfolio structure as you would for a generic index-based portfolio. So the same thing what Vanguard taught us. And our fees are the same as what you'd pay for any type of online investment advisor for their generic portfolio as well. Okay, great. I always ask my guests um, what sustainability means to them. And, And you have a unique approach here with sustainable investing. And, and not only on, on you know, I'm usually have have guests that talk about um, sta- sustainability 
or on the manufacturing end and, and what, what it means to them. And one term that came across in, in, in some of the materials I read about carbon collective is sustainable investing. What does sustainability mean to you and, and how does that have an effect on how you form carbon collective? Absolutely. Um, I think the term is best explained by its definition. It means it could be, you know, something can be done over and over again. It is sustainable. And right now, in the way that our civilization exists, it is not. We cannot continue doing these same things over and over again. It is fundamentally an unsustainable way of being. For us, the greatest threat to that right now is climate change. The levels in which we are emitting carbon, and that is in other greenhouse gases that are warming our atmosphere, are uh, pushing us into a path where with global weather changes and system changes that are coming, um, the way that we have been living, the places that we live, the ways that we transport things, how we grow our food, those systems that we've come to depend on, that we need them to be sustainable, to be able to expect that the crop that I grew last year, I can grow next year, um, that becomes severely threatened in a world of escalating climate change. And so that to us is why in order to maintain a level of sustainability, we have to build our way into a zero carbon world in order to stop emissions. So that way then we can start addressing those historic emissions and getting them out of the atmosphere so they're no longer creating a warming effect. And we can go back to a much more stabilized climate. If we do not do that, other to us, other questions around sustainability, whether it be how plastics are being used or Things in the circular economy, these are all really important. They're also really tied into climate change. But if we can't do that at a base level and transition ourselves off of needing to burn stuff in order to power our civilization, then we are incredibly unlikely to reach any point of true equilibrium and sustainability with our global civilization and how we operate. And that's a very scary prospect. You know, hearing about what Carbon Collective does, and 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 you know the 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 goal of 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 Carbon Collective, and I love the the motto of of uh, retiring in a world that you want. Uh, that's that's fantastic. But the the one question I have is, how can my investments through Carbon Collective really have an impact on climate change? You know what what happens to these investments? It's such a great question. And it's something that I think gets really confused. You know, you hear the term impact investing. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? How does that actually generate impact? Because when you dig a layer down, when we're buying stocks and bonds on publicly traded markets, it, you're actually buying used stocks. Um, the stock market is far more like eBay than it is like Amazon. <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> and so what is the actual impact of trading these used stocks that a company already sold for the first time? So we like to break it down in three ways. The first impact that you have is voting. Uh, when you own a publicly traded company, it is publicly traded. It, it, the stock market is a weird form of democracy. And as shareholders, you have a right to vote on issues that other shareholders put forward. And if you own enough shares, which it's not that much that you need to own, you get to put forth shareholder resolutions that others can vote on as well and build coalitions. And you can actually force management to do things through those voting actions. This is a tool that in the uh, climate world, we're really just starting to scratch the surface on in using. We at Carbon Collective believe those votes should be used on decreasing fossil fuel demand 
So how do we get companies to switch to 100% renewable energy, 100% electrified fleet, rather than focusing on decreasing fossil fuel supply, trying to convince an ExxonMobil to stop selling oil, even though they have customers who want to buy their oil? That doesn't make very much sense to us. So that's why we really want to focus on that demand side. So voting is a really key part. And if you're just holding, let's say, a Vanguard index fund, those shares are being voted on your behalf. And they're most often voted in alignment with management. Um, And that probably doesn't fit your values. And it very much probably does not fit the advancement of what we have to do and that company needs to do uh, in addressing climate change. So that's a really key part. The second part is cost of capital. Yes, these are used shares that are being traded. But that begs the question, well, then why do you know, company boards and their executive teams care so much about share price. CEOs get fired for share price uh, for what happens in the stock market with their shares. So clearly, this is the the share price of these publicly traded shares is really important to these companies. And the reason that it's important is a it's public perception, but b more so is that when a company's share price is high, it enables it to raise money by either selling more shares or getting a loan from a bank more cheaply. So it gets to apply, its cost of capital is lower, which means that it gets to have more money in order to expand its operations. This is exactly what we want to have happen for climate solutions. We want their cost of capital to be as low as possible so that they can expand as possible. And they're paying as little in interest to either their uh, shareholders um, or to the bank. That is really key. This is something that we don't want fossil fuels to be able to do from a climate perspective. We want their cost of capital to be as high as possible, which is part of why divesting is really important. This is especially true for things like our retirement funds, where we tend to buy and hold for decades um, shares in a company. That effectively reduces the supply of actively traded shares of that company in the market. And so this is a pretty powerful tool that we get to use because stock price is just dictated by supply and demand of shares. So the lower the supply, when demand goes up, the share price is going to go even higher, and that's going to help that company grow even faster. Mm. And then the third part is narrative. This is the least tangible, but in some ways the most important, which is there are strong undercurrents in the investing world that influence investors' decisions broadly. I'll give you two of them that are very relevant here. One is that it is a necessary evil to include fossil fuels in a well-balanced portfolio, that they operate in a counter-cyclical fashion. So meaning when the rest of the stock market goes down, they tend to go up or vice versa. And therefore, it's really important for returns in order to hold them. That has not been true for the the past 30 years um, over this period of time. If you had divested from the S&P 500 in the year I was born, 1989, um, up until the present, you would have had made more money um, than just holding the overall S&P 500 in general. And this includes a decade in the 2000s when fossil fuels did considerably better than the S&P 500. That's amazing. (laughs) You don't read about that in the paper. (laughs) No. And, And that is part of the narrative that we need to change because that narrative becomes self perpetuating. Again, stock price is dictated by supply and demand. And so if demand for fossil fuel stocks is higher because there is this narrative that they are an important part, they're that necessary evil, it will actually keep the share price higher with it. It becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. 
The opposite narrative is also true. We get this all the time of people say, all right, I am ready to join Carbon Collective. And you know, I know I'm going to perform a couple percentage points worse, but that's okay. There's a level uh, in a narrative that to invest sustainably is an act of charity. And that has also been wrong. And it is very likely to continue being wrong. We believe that the opposite is true, that investing sustainably um, is likely to outperform we're not doesn't necessarily will outperform in the next month or the next year. But when we look at a decades level, uh, the macro trends that we're seeing of fossil fuels being fundamentally an industry that is in decline, whose market share is being eaten up by uh, things that just beat it economically, solar, wind, batteries, electric cars. These are just better technologies to meet their base needs whether it's producing cheaper electricity or transporting you more cheaply from point A to B in a vehicle that will break down way less and be safer and roomier, that's oil's market share is being eaten up by that. So would you rather hold an industry that is fundamentally in decline based upon the the market forces that are going on outside of any legislation that's being passed um, or uh, hold the companies that are rising to take their place? Again, this is a part of that narrative where it is an important act to change your investing. And it's equally important then to talk about it because the tipping point will come in the divestment and reinvestment movement, not just when enough people are saying, we can't do this for climate reasons. But when you start getting the people to say, and we can't do this for financial reasons, this no longer makes sense. Then we start, we'll start to really see the cascade of that happening. But that only comes when enough people are challenging that narrative and spreading things like exactly what I said. You said, you know, you don't see that in the papers. We need that to change. And that's part of what we're trying to do at Carbon Collective with the type of education that we provide. Yeah. And, and, and the other hurdle that you have to overcome with, you know, with trying to support that narrative to, to, to change it is, is, is really when it comes to investment strategy, you know, what we hear from Wall Street is environmental, social, and governance. There were ESG, and um, when it comes to the investing strategy, and and what's what's interesting is is I I had a meeting. I mean, I'm I'm not a savvy investor. I I have a, a an advisor that we go to, my wife and I. And when I mentioned to him to him about Carbon Collective, his first response was, "Oh, the ESG." And uh, I said, I, I don't think that's quite right. And, and, and in the back of my mind, when he said that, I said, I have to ask Zach about this when we have our podcast together. So ESG is pretty prominent in, 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 in the media. You know, that's what we read about, what's what we see on, on TV and in the news reports and stuff like that. And, and that's, that's where our investment strategies are made on companies that are rated on environmental and societal uh, responsibility scales. And that's all determined by a third-party independent companies and research groups. So, so Zach, what does ESG mean to you? What are its benefits and its pitfalls when it comes to investing? And how does ESG differ from what Carbon Collective is doing? It's such a good question. And this is your investment advisor's response is so often how you know, Wall Street and others have trained us to think about sustainable investing. ESG is the latest innovation in a change in, in a chain of tools to try and account for um, ethics to some degree. 
this all started with um, value-based investing for uh, uh, religions. Um, it was largely like, like Catholic groups, but then you also had Jewish groups and Islamic groups um, wanting to say, oh, we want our endowments to match our religious values. So you started seeing funds or portfolios being built on that. From that, you started then having what was called SRI investing, socially responsible investing. And this took the next step to say, okay, um, we think that outside of religious context that this would be valuable. So we're just going to apply some negative screens. And what that means is we're just going to remove certain categories of companies. So companies they often removed were like nuclear energy companies, weapons companies, tobacco, pornography, gambling companies, etc. Um, things that were just kind of broadly deemed to be uh, socially harmful um, that people wouldn't want to be in. Mm-hmm. ESG um, arose in the uh, 2000s as a tool built for institutional investors, by institutional investors, to account for ethical risks. So there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that investors use for making decisions of how to build a balanced portfolio. And a lot of it, the goal is how do you mitigate risks? Companies will look at, or investors will look at a company's balance sheet. You know, what's its financial health? They'll also look at, like, at a company's you know, price-to-earnings ratio and things like that. ESG was initially built as a tool just to allow those type of investors to see into other types of risks, in particular, environmental risks. Is this company, if there was a carbon tax passed, what would happen to this company in its bottom line? And that I might want to protect myself from that as an investor. You know, socially, how diverse is this company? Is there going to be, you know, some bad press that could come out about this that would hurt this company's share price or need to lead to some change up? Um, G governance, is this company's board being well run? Um, that's going to be really important to me as an investor to know that there are some really serious adults in the room um, who are keeping an eye out uh, on this company and representing me as a shareholder um, in doing that well. So that's what ESG was initially intended for. It was not intended necessarily to be a label for values investing or for impact investing. Now the way it's used is saying, oh, you know, is that investing ESG? It's somewhat the equivalent of saying, is that invested, is that investment credit rating? Mm. That doesn't really make sense. Is it, you know, high E? Is it low E? Is it, you know, what what actually falls in that? Is it high credit rating? Is it low credit rating? It is just a metric system in a data set. So what ESG's innovation was, was whereas before you just had these negative screens, ESG brought quantitative data to this space for the first time. Again, really useful in understanding risk. But then there's this other demand for values-based investing, for impact investing for money managers to be able to turn to the people that they're, whose money they're managing to say, hey, look, this is aligned in a more ethical fashion that might be more aligned with you. And that's, they borrowed from ESG and actually adapted it to these new use cases for what something it was never actually well adapted for in the first place. And so we actually believe right now what we are in the middle of is what is called a classic te- technological unbundling of ESG. And an unbundling occurs when a product is really successful and it's a new product in its space. And it's so successful that people start using it for different purposes than it was initially intended for. There are some really famous ones in the tech world of this. Excel is a really good example. 
Excel was initially intended to make you know computation things that you would have to use a uh, calculator and ruler for and build it out in a really complicated fashion that was very uh, hands-on. Make it all be uh, automated. You could do it at the click of a button in a very uh, structured way. People saw, oh, this is great. I'm now going to start managing tasks on it in, in team projects, or I'm going to start managing client contacts in this, something it was never intended for. The unbundling of Excel has resulted in online software CRMs, customer relation management systems, or project management systems. There's other examples. Email has been something that is unbundled. Slack is a good example that came out of that. Or Craigslist is an example of something that's been, that's been unbundled. Airbnb, AutoTrader, these other groups of uh, uh, examples that came out for that. So we believe that the same thing is happening in ESG right now, where what we've seen is that there is clearly a very high demand for investments that align with people's values and for our investments to drive impact and for much clearer labels of what is actually accomplishing that. And so that's where we see companies like Carbon Collective, and there's others working on different pieces of this coming and saying, ah, there is demand here, but the product itself actually does not fit. In ESG, it does not fit what people are actually looking for. So a difference for Carbon Collective is that one of the problems we see with ESG is it's trying to do everything at once. It's trying to account for all sorts of ethical risks in one way. And by trying to do everything at once, you basically dilute any specific impact or uh, metric that you're trying to focus on. Um, we believe climate change is the most pressing issue of our time. And we believe that investing is a really important tool um, in order to solve it. We cannot solve climate change unless we change how we invest. And so that is what we focus on. We do have a few additional screens with there. So uh, we don't invest in any private prisons. We don't hold tobacco companies and we don't hold weapons companies um, for that. Um, but outside of that, we are not applying any kind of broad ESG screens um, with this, in particular because we see one of the big problems with ESG is it doesn't engender trust. ESG is built upon proprietary data sets from companies like MSCI and Sustainalytics. They make their money by doing deep analysis of these companies across their environmental E, their social S, and their G governance. They then take all of that data, they bundle it all together, and then they sell it to groups like Vanguard and BlackRock to build funds with. They aren't going to give away the cow for free. They're not <laughs> going to show how all of that data got made because that's how they make their money. And so if you're buying, let's say, a Vanguard uh, ESG fund that is in partnership with MSCI, you're basically being asked to trust Vanguard and therefore MSCI that this fits your values or this is driving impact or why is this company in there? And But you don't get to see how that sausage is being made in any way, nor will you ever be able to. And so that's with Carbon Collective, we try to build our portfolios very much in an opposite approach. This is not a, you know, AI-driven tech robot that is building these portfolios. Our goal and what I say to our team is we want an intelligent eight-year-old to be able to understand our investment strategy and be able to point out and, and say like, oh, you know, why is this in here um, for this reason? We want it to be that clear because to us, that's how you build trust and you can't we can't reach our goals on sustainable investing and what we need to build without really clear trust. These you so quickly fall into greenwashing and that we have been so burned in this space. 
by greenwashing. There's so much inherent distrust because of greenwashing. Um, anyone who's trying to approach sustainable investing is somewhat coming in um, guilty until proven innocent. So there's a large uphill battle to do, and you, we, you want to make sure that you're as clear as possible in order to get to that place of trust. Okay, great insight. And, and, and I can confidently say that I fit into your target customer as an intelligent eight-year-old. So, <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. Uh, Zach, how exactly do you select the companies that Carbon Collective invests in? And, and can you provide examples of some that you, you have in your portfolio and why they're there? Yes. So we try to apply those index-based or those passive principles, which is invest with as much of the market as possible and don't try and pick winners and losers. In general, there's two approaches to investing, active and passive. Active says, hey, we're going to look at the market. We're going to see what's going on. We're going to track what's going on with the Fed and with all these other macroeconomic things. And we're going to buy and sell to try and beat and stay ahead of the market. Passive has the opposite approach, which says that's really hard. And if we look at the data, has never proven to work five-year period over five-year period. And so let's instead just invest with the market with as low fees as possible. Again, this is what groups like Vanguard really popularized. So we think that's a really smart way to invest. So we apply those principles to our investment strategy. For our divest piece of the companies that we don't invest in, we try to look at what sectors and industries are technologically blocked from being able to transition into a zero carbon world. And so with that, we're looking at the science for it um, and looking at the papers and trying to take an especially skeptical eye because there's a lot of spaces where industry wants us to really get behind the fact that there is a technological breakthrough right around the corner. Carbon sequestration, I think, is a good example where the fossil fuel industry has been saying, hey, we're an important part of the climate solution, too. We're just, you know, we just need to finish getting our carbon capture and sequestration technology online. So when we burn carbon or when we burn fossil fuels, we just capture the emissions and stick them back underground so they don't go into the atmosphere. Tens of billions of dollars has been invested in that technology, and it still doesn't work. Um, and there's danger in depending upon it because it can lead us to not acting in enough time. So that's the type of things we do for that divest piece. For our reinvest, for the companies that are building climate solutions, we, again, are broadly holding what are the categories of climate solution companies, and then how do we apply that to the existing stock market? So we, And we're doing it with passive investing principles. We aren't choosing which solar company is going to win or lose in this. We invest in all of them. Um, with some very small um, financial filters with that, um, and then weight it by market cap. So if the stock market thinks that a company A is a really valuable company, it will get a much higher weighting in our portfolios than company B if they think it's a, a not very valuable company. So again, we're not trying to make any decisions on who's going to win or lose. We're trying to apply just those broad index-based principles. And then we do that same thing with that step three for engage. I'll give an example of a company that doesn't make it in our um, reinvest into the climate solutions. We do exclude companies who generate more revenue from products or services that are built for or dependent upon the fossil fuel industry. I'll give an example from 2022. General Electric is one of the largest manufacturers of wind turbines in the world. 
obviously, wind is a really important solution to climate change. Um, we cannot have a zero carbon uh, electricity grid without very significant investment in buildup of our wind energy infrastructure. The problem with GE is that they actually generate more revenue from their natural gas turbine business, so generating electricity from natural gas for power plants, and their jet engine business, so for airplanes. So given that, we do not hold uh, GE because we use this last year's revenue as its best predictor of where they're going to be investing in the future. Should that change, then we will hold them in the future. Um, and so that is some of the framework of how we build that decision. We're trying to only use publicly available information, and we're never using any type of climate pledge or anything like that, because when it, in this space, talk is really cheap, and it's really easy for an executive to say, yeah, we'll be carbon neutral by 2040. But what is that? Uh, that executive is probably going to be retired, mm-hmm. long retired by that point. Maybe if you're saying we're going to be carbon neutral within the next three years, and I'll take a pay cut. If we're not, so will my whole executive team. Um, And I'll get a bonus if we are. Um, That is awesome. That is exactly the type of thing we want to see. We still wouldn't make an investment decision based off of it because we're just using revenue in that filter. But that's some of uh, how we build our portfolios. Okay. Well, what what do you see in Carbon Collective's future? And are there, do you plan on expanding into other environmental issues that you may, may address through investing? Yeah, so we are pretty laser focused on climate change. Mm-hmm. Climate change touches a lot of environmental issues. Part of solving climate change is protecting and expanding our natural world. Um, when we have more nature, that is more carbon that is being sequestered on the earth than in the atmosphere, um, because carbon is a life, it is a building block of nature. So the uh, analogy that we like to use is a very classic one when it comes to climate change. It's the bathtub analogy. The problem with climate change is we have dug up all of this ancient fossil, these fossilized fuels, and they were old trees and marshes and plants that all of that carbon that would have been a part of the normal carbon cycle, where when a tree dies, it rots, that carbon gets re-released into the atmosphere and another tree absorbs it through that carbon dioxide to then grow. Um, and plants eat those, or animals eat the leaves and et cetera. You have a natural ecosystem. All of these fossilized fuels are from that system, but it's some for some reason, it depends on what was happening geologically, it got captured you know, millions of years ago. So we're now digging that up and, you know, pumping it into the atmosphere now. So we are doing that so that the, the tap of the bathtub is now turned on high with carbon emissions. At the same time, we have been decreasing, we've been lowering the sides of the bathtub because we have been reducing our natural world. You know, whether this is through industrialized agriculture or overfishing or different tree or, or pollution, um, the uh, just the, the amount of biomass of nature that we have in the world is just lower. And so that means that the carrying capacity for carbon dioxide in the natural system is also going down. So not only do we have the tap turned on really high, but we actually have been lowering the sides of the bathtub at the same time. And what that's led to is this overflow of carbon dioxide. And the analogy there is you could think about the water spilling over into the floor, going into the the heating vents, getting into the insulation and and the foundation of the house. And that is what's really scary um, in that it is actually threatening 
the uh, foundation of our global system. And so to solve climate change, the first thing that we have to do is we have to turn off the tap. We have to reach a civilization where we're no longer using those fossilized carbon, those fossilized fossil fuels on those ancient ones to power our civilization. We're able to power and run our civilization. People can still have air conditioning and transport goods and services, but without burning stuff. So we stop that. The second thing is that we also are investing in, in, uh, and this is part of how we can pressure companies, how are they protecting instead of abusing? their natural resources? How do we start to re-raise those sides of the bathtub so we can have a larger carbon carrying capacity um, for our world? And then third is if we do that, we're going to be in a good position to deploy the right types of technologies to mop up the mess. Um, So this is going to be different types of carbon sequestration and other technologies to say, okay, we need to go in and turn on those air dryers uh, and and get the mop and bucket to get all of that excess water off the bathroom floor and and dry out the foundations. That way we make sure we're not going to have this damage uh, be lasting. So I know that was kind of a a long-winded answer to your question. Um, What are we trying to do at Carbon Collective is we are trying to build and fundamentally redefine what sustainable investing means for all types of investors. We are starting at the bottom with people like you and me because that's actually how the world changes. Um, The world only changes when enough people, the status quo only changes when enough people say enough is enough. I'm going to do something different. And that's what starts to move us. So we do that with our, our robo-advisor for individuals. We also have our 401k program for businesses. And we're expanding into other areas as well. With that, that's going to put us in a strong position to start moving upwards um, and work with uh, higher net worth individuals and also institutional investors. Um, the world of success, there's two things of what we imagine for Carbon Collective of what would be successful. Is A, when we start seeing... Uh, well, I'll, let's put this in this example. When your a financial advisor like yours is able to distinguish and say, oh, you want sustainable investing. So that would be a group like Carbon Collective. They're not associating it with ESG anymore. But that has a really clear definition of what it's trying to drive, in particular around climate change. That will be very successful for us. And the second is when we see uh, university students we're not just saying, hey, endowments, stop investing in fossil fuels, but say, because right now there's a question mark, okay, you divest that money, what happens to it? And instead say, and, and start investing in this way, in ways that are built to drive as much climate impact as possible, whether that's you know us uh, helping with that or someone else, that is what uh, uh, success, ultimate success would look like for Carbon Collective. Yeah, it's, it, it's not only meaningful investment, it's exciting exciting investment also to be able to make such a, you know, a huge change in the world that we need is exciting and meaningful uh, on both ends. Um, how can our listeners get started with Carbon Collective, Zach? Yeah. If you want to join, if you're in this place where you're saying, okay, I am ready to make this change, we would love to help. Um, you can go to our website. It's carboncollective.co.co. And get started. You uh, click a button. It's a short onboarding form. A lot of ways that people like to get started is uh, rolling over an old retirement account. So this is like an IRA or maybe an old 401k. We're very helpful with that. Or depositing a little bit of cash and seeing um, how that goes and getting an experience at the platform. Um, we also have a button called Talk to a Human, um, where if you have any questions <laughs> or ever want to talk to us, 
we're real people who care about this a lot and we want to help grow sustainable investing as much as possible. And that takes time. It takes trust. It takes relationship building. So we very much put that up front with that. In general, what we like to say of you know the answer to the question of how should I as an, an individual approach climate change? We like to say, start with the big pieces of your life. These are big one-time decisions that you get to pick up, look at, and then do. But once you've done them, it's actually done. So this is where you bank. This is where you invest. This is also how you generate the electricity for your house. This is how you transport yourself in your car. How do you heat your home? How do you cook your food? Um, These types of decisions, they are not small. But once you make them, then you just turn on the stove. You don't need to think about it every day. It's different than saying, oh, it's Monday, I'm supposed to be vegan today, or walking down the grocery store aisle and getting caught in decision fatigue. So that is a framework that we would definitely say to, uh, and we like to say to listeners and audiences like yours, of how do you look at your own life and make sure that you've done those big things? And then from there, you can really focus on, well, what are you passionate about? In this space, because now your life, the gears behind your life, the background behind your life is just fundamentally built to be far more aligned with um, a sustainable future. And and I highly recommend our listeners visit your your website. I, f- I found it uh, quite informative and, and I learned quite a bit about what you guys do and how you do it. You lay it all out there for for everyone. So uh, it's it's a great resource. Based on your experiences to date, Zach, what's your number one piece of advice that you would give to a younger Zach Stein as he begins his career as an entrepreneur? I think it's have faith. Um, I had a very meandering path, and the one through line for it was I was always learning. And I think I would say have faith that that learning is going to get you to where you need to go. And it's okay not knowing where exactly that is. Great advice. Um, on a personal note, can you share with our uh, listeners an interest or hobby that you you really enjoy doing with your free time? Yeah, um, I love cooking. I I, be, I went vegan uh, in the past two years. You know, talking about climate actions, um, <laughs> and so I found it a really wonderful challenge of having a much more constricted capability of what the types of things I'm able to cook with and do and how do i still build in really satisfying food for me um in building that um i also love reading um i am a huge audiophile so uh i i currently have a four-month-old so i am not reading as much as i once did Mm -hmm. Uh, but prior to that i was reading a book or two a week um just my off time exercising uh while cooking etc um and on a very wide-ranging uh series of topics What's the uh, latest book you're uh, you're into right now? I'll share two. I haven't been reading as much recently. One of the most wonderful books I've read is a book called Fight Night by Miriam Taves. Um, and it is about uh, three generations of women with the main character being, I think she's supposed to be nine years old. Um, and they are just they're so powerful it's so wonderfully written it's fiction um and i cannot recommend it more it is laugh out loud funny and one of those books that it's such deep literature but it doesn't feel like it um and that's what i that's some of my favorite of it's a very fall it's a story that's very easy to follow along with 
Um, and then the other book that I've been thinking a ton about um, is from one of my favorite thinkers um, who unfortunately is no longer with us, David Graeber um, and the dawn of everything, uh, which is a uh, very uh, challenging critique, not challenging to read, but challenging of the status quo of how we look at the pathway of civilization and that we assume there were hunter-gatherers and then they started farming and civilization blossomed. And how, like everything in the world, it is so much more complicated than that. And what that means and can tell us about what is fundamental to human nature and how having this much more limited narrative about the evolution of humans into civilization, as what we call it now, um, how that is actually just much more of a backwards way of looking and a justification of the current aspects of human nature that our global system brings out in us and is in no way um, prescriptive or a definition of what is human nature entirely. And things like that give me a lot of hope um, for what the worlds that we can build and that it is very much a part of human nature uh, to cooperate and to live sustainably and to do things that are for more than just ourselves um, and find great meaning in that. So um, that is a wonderful book that I could not recommend more. Well, I, uh, I will soon be a reader of both. Um, I'm going to hit up my local bookstore this weekend. And uh, if they don't have it on the shelf, I'll definitely order it through them. Thanks for, uh, for those recommendations. And, and, and Zach, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. If people want to get in touch with you, how, how, how would they do that? Um, they can go ahead, head to our website, carboncollective.co. If you have any questions, you can always email hello at carboncollective.co or hit that talk to a human button. Fantastic. Thanks again, Zach. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. Uh, until we share some time together again, stay safe and be well. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks, Zach. Very informative for our listeners also. Take care now. The Business of Environment podcast is sponsored by Envision Environmental. Do you have environmental gorillas hiding in plain sight at your facility? Chances are you do, and you don't even know it. Discover how to assess your environmental, health, and safety risks, and protect yourself from fines and liabilities before there's trouble. Download a free copy of our book, Overlooked, Hunting the Invisible Environmental Gorilla, at envisionenvironmental.com slash free book.